Good evening, everyone, and welcome here to tonight's Five by Fifteen. And I couldn't be more happy. And in fact, there's so many reasons why this is just the perfect moment to be having this conversation. And we're going to be talking tonight about this extraordinary book called 140 Artists' Ideas for Planet Earth. Now, this is a book that's been put together by the Serpentine, and it goes with their extraordinary exhibition, which is multi-layered, it's going to go on for a long time, it's movable, it's tangible, and they have involved in it, they have artists, they have filmmakers, they have poets, they have environmentalists, they have scientists, as well as thinkers and designers who are all involved to ask this big, big question, which is what can art do about climate change? Now, it might sound a ridiculous question, but actually it's about the most important question that we could ask ourselves at the moment. Um, right now, the Environment Bill is going through Parliament. And I have to tell you, it's an incredibly unimaginative bill. It sort of concentrates endlessly on the problems and kind of laws that will help the problems. But in fact, we are the people who are going to address these problems. And we're going to address them because we take agency of our own lives and we imagine and we think about a different kind of future, which is ours to grab. And if you think of all the big social movements, whether it's feminism or gay rights, they all began from the streets, from the ground up. And in the end, they allowed people to change their minds, to see there was another way of doing it. So I couldn't be happier tonight to have our speakers. Um, I have got Caroline, Carolina Cicado from Colombia, who's got a wonderful piece, which you're going to see that's in the exhibition. I've got Kostas Stasinopoulos, who is one of the curators. He's joining us from Athens, where it is 40 degrees, certainly not here where I am in London. Got Rob Hopkins, who's in Devon, who's joining us because he's the author of this fantastic book called From What Is to What If. And actually, at the end of the day, that's at the heart of so much of what we're going to be talking about. What if we did the following? But I want to start with Brian Eno, who is no stranger to Five by Fifteen and is a visionary, inspirational. He's an artist, a producer, and a composer, and he makes amazing art. I looked at it and it's stunning. Brian has been involved in this exhibition right from the start. He was, in fact, a co-curator of it, I think. He's also a trustee of Client Earth, as well as director of Earth Descent, and he actually invented or co-invented the extraordinary clock called the Long Now Foundation, which is a, an organization that says we've got to get out of the immediate moment. So, Brian, thank you, first of all, very, very much for joining us from Essex. Um, and we love the background behind you. But can you tell me why we need art right now and what is it that artists can bring to, to our dilemma? Thank you, Rosie. Thank you for that nice introduction. Um, so humans really look for two kinds of information about the world. One of those kinds of information is how does it work? How do things come into being? How, how can we control them? How can we use them? How can we benefit from them? So on and so on. All of that, it seems to me, is the province of science. That's what scientists do. They try to find out what this world consists of and how it works. But there's another job, which is we want to know how the world feels to us. We don't only want to know what it is, we want to know what it means to us. 
How does it feel to us? And I think that that is the job of art. How it feels is really another way of saying, what does it mean to humans? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have the objective information about how the world works. Water freezes at 100, at zero degrees. Uh, forces operate like this and that. That's all objective information. But that has to be interpreted to humans in such a way that it makes sense in their lives. It has some meaning to them. And I, I think that's what the arts do more than anything else, actually. We understand reality by modeling it, simulating it, if you like, in novels, in films, in artworks. We create models of how the world could otherwise be. You could have somebody who lived in Islington who imagined being an astronaut. You know, you can construct a whole story. You can imagine worlds. That's what artists are doing all the time. They're imagining worlds. And by publishing those in some way or another, they're saying to the rest of us, what do you feel about this? What does this world mean to you? And how does the understanding of those feelings change how you feel about this world? Now, just recently, you and I have shared a piece of work that I think impressed both of us hugely, which is Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry for the Future. Mm -hmm. This is a piece of speculative fiction, a brilliantly researched and very well written novel, which I suppose would be called sci-fi, um, if you want to use that word. But what it is really is a proposition about how the world could develop, how we could save the world from the effects of climate change. And as soon as you read that book, which is purely fictional, um, you start thinking about would that work? How would we make that happen? Who would we have to talk to to get that to so on and so on? So I think, I mean, that book is a very literal example of this process taking place. But I think that's essentially what we do with art. We, we use art as a space to model realities, alternative realities, and see how we feel about them. And, and that's because, sorry, I just finished this thought in quickly, but that's because feeling Mm. Although it's always been sort of dismissed as rather woolly and unquantifiable, but feeling is really the beginning of thinking. Feeling is the first way that we think. It's when we articulate feelings, they become what we call thoughts, but actually the real thoughts begin with feelings. Um, this is a, a conclusion from the brilliant book by Mark Solms, which came out this year called The Hidden Spring. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I, I won't go on about books any longer, but I will come back to books later okay. on. Well, I, I, well, obviously, I completely agree with you about the Kim Stanley Robinson. I think, think that art has this incredible role, and I think Cost is coming to you next, that it is about, you can't go into a future that isn't imagined for you, and that you can't see, and that you, as Brian says, you need to feel it. That, uh, and I think there's, there's so much fear floating around about stuff that people get really frozen. So yeah. uh, tell us about making this exhibition and making this book. Thank you so much for the invitation and thank you to everyone who is here to talk about it and 
uh, everyone that is joining us. Uh, this book is uh, part of the Back to Earth project, which, as you said, um, really interweaves itself across all of the Serpentine's uh, programs and methods of working and is learning on how to create new ways of working and uh, thinking. So Back to Earth is uh, our anniversary program. Um, it was uh, celebrated and begun on the occasion of the Serpentine's 50th anniversary in 2020. But um, as we always do, we decided to not look back at the 50 years that have passed and give ourselves a pat on the shoulder. We wanted to look ahead, always, we look ahead. So we try to imagine what the next 50 years would look like. So there is no really way to do that without addressing the current situation of the environmental crisis and the climate emergency. So we decided to um, embark on this program that was also not just an anniversary program. This program is gonna stay at the Serpentine long-term. We're in it mm -hmm. for the long haul. Um, to invite over 60 artists, designers, architects, scientists, thinkers, and practitioners from all disciplines really to contribute to the project with Brian being one of our key interlocutors from the very beginning. Um, something that is not a representation of art, like, you know, sidestepping side the issue of art being purely representational. So we invited people like Carolina Cayacedo, who is working on uh, long-term projects that are looking at land rights and river rights and the impact of dams in um, the area that she's working in, and really try to engage with those um, artists and practitioners in meaningful ways, because that is the only way that we see change being possible. Um, you can't really put on a show and be done with it. You need to work with artists and support the work that they do in whatever ways, timings, uh, investments and developments that it makes sense for them because everyone has a very different experience of the environmental disaster. There are much different experiences between Brian's um, location and Carolina's work, Bob's work. Um, so we really try to engage in meaningful ways and really instrumentalize the operation of an art institution like the Serpentine. So we're in it for the long haul and we um, we celebrate uh, this um, discussion today with the first Back to Earth publication that is in collaboration with Penguin. And there are people there that are part of the Back to Earth project, but even more people that we decided to engage because this book is um, an incredible talisman of collective action and collaboration in a year, especially where we've been kept apart due to the pandemic. So we wanted to offer this as um, an inspiration and see and uh, not really try to predict the many ways that it can unfold. So I really want to listen to um, Carolina and Brian, for example, who have contributed the book because we've been in discussions about what their ideas in the book is in the past year and um, how they related back then in their projects and how far along their projects are now and their current thinking is now. Um, and I'm very happy to be sharing this with you all. Thank you, thank you so much. I mean, it, what's so great about, one of the many things that's great about the book is it's full of ideas that are completely portable that you can do anywhere in the world and more or less anywhere that you are. So let's come over to you now, Carolina, Carolina from Colombia. And you are a London-born Colombian artist and you do a lot of um, activism. Your work is really political. And it would be great to see the two images that you have put up that are in the book so that you could, you could talk us through them. And I absolutely agree with Costas that, of course, we all experience the climate crisis in different ways. Um, I do know the story behind this particular picture, but can you tell us? 
Yes, this is a drawing um, of a quote of um, Mamo Pedro Juan. Let me show you an image of Mamo Pedro Juan. Um, I, had the, I had the fortune of uh, speaking and interviewing and have a conversation with Mamo Pedro Juan and his interpreter, Jose de los Santos, who's the younger person in the image uh, back in 2013. And um, I had just embarked in starting this research and this project that's called Be Damned that looks at the implications and affectations that dams and other water infrastructures have over bodies of water and over social bodies. So um, the territory of the Kogi people, uh, which is the people that, uh, you know, the Mamo led at that point, he passed in 2017, unfortunately, um, is in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta in Northern Colombia. It's, uh, it's a beautiful, snowy mountain range, very close to the Caribbean Sea. And their territory was damaged by a dam construction called El Cercado over the Rancheria River, which is one of their sacred rivers. So when I asked the Mamo what, the, what did the uh, dam meant for his people and for, for them, he said that the dam was like a knot in the veins. And then he said, actually, it's even worse. The dam is like a knot in your anus. And um, of course I tied in my butt, you know, talking about feeling and, you know, those kind of conversations that make you feel. And it just uh, stayed with me in many ways. One, you know, that profound knowledge that indigenous people have over their territories and the understanding and the profound connection that they have with their surroundings, um, you know, uh, to understand that rivers have this depurative action, you know, that they clean the territory, that they're not only carry nutrients, but also clean, you know, um, the places they pass through. And then understanding that the dam, you know, held all these nutrients, but also detritus that the river brings, you know, and hold by holding it, it meant just like what you feel when you can't take a crap, right? You feel sick, you know, it brings sickness, it brings death. And that's what infrastructures and that's what you know, a lot of our human actions have brought to our territories, death and sickness, no? So I think uh, just, you know, reinforcing what Brian said, as artists, we can help people feel and feel in profound ways, even making your butt tight, you know, mm -hmm. that's what I want people to do when they see this drawing, to feel the consequences in their ass. And also uh, to heal. We have the possibility of bringing healing and opening spaces for healing too, right? Because we need to heal in order uh, to heal what is surrounding us too. Mamo passed, unfortunately, uh, his, his successor, uh, Jose Los Santos, who is in the picture, the younger person passed la last uh, February uh, of COVID too. That was a lost, huge loss for environmentalism in the Americas. And I just wanna finish with this, um, something Jose Los Santos said and why sacred places for indigenous people are so important. It's because these are the places that, uh, you know, and thinking about pandemic uh, right now and, you know, all this hospi hospital terms, but intensive unit uh, care units are the, those sacred places for nature. That's where nature recovers. That's where mm -hmm. animals go to give birth. You know, that's where reproductive cycles happen. And those sacred places have, of course, a ritualistic importance for indigenous people, but also an environmental importance, right? Because that's not separated in indigenous worlds. And just to say, 
indigenous knowledge also helps us to envision other worlds, you know, not only one world, but other possible wor worlds like the Zapatistas have taught us to do. Thank you, thank you so much. That was uh, that was amazing, and that's so sad that uh, that, was, that he died because of COVID. Um, but it's very, very graphic that sense of the blockage, and you can feel it both metaphorically and really about just about everything gets blocked like that. So Carolina also talked there about about healing, and Rob Rob Hopkins, who's joining us from Topness. So your book um, about transition towns was put you on the map as transition, but now you've written a book that is which I have just read and I have to say I really love from what is to what if and it's really about optimism and doing and healing so thank you for being with us and how, how do you see the imagination engaging and why is the imagination so incredibly important I think it's uh hi thank you yeah I, I think it's really important because uh Walida Imarisha who's an amazing writer in the US she says you cannot build what you cannot imagine Mm. Martin Luther King said any movement, any culture will fail if it cannot paint a picture of the world, that, of a world that people will want to go to. And it's something that we fail at so spectacularly, I think, often. We, we, we focus on the problem. We focus on what's wrong. We focus on what's broken. And I think we're living in a culture that is creating the worst possible conditions for the collective imagination, almost a sort of perfect storm of factors that are ruinous to our creating a really... Uh, a really active imagination. Mariame Cabo is an incredible prison abolitionist writer in the US. She said that we are locked, we live in a system that's locked into a false sense of inevitability, which just kind of captures it for me. You know, where are the people in the Department of Justice actively making the space to have the conversations about, about what society would look like if we if we completely reimagined that? Where are the people in the Ministry of Defense actively having the conversations about a peaceful world and how we might actually get there? So, so for me, you know, I, I often, when I give talks, talk about the moon. You know, when we went to the moon, it wasn't JFK's idea. It wasn't Neil Armstrong's idea. We'd gone to the moon in stories and fables and songs. Ever since we realized it was a kind of a, an object we could actually travel to, we wrote stories about making really long ladders or getting there on the backs of birds or balloons. Or Jules Verne wrote his first book where astronauts were fired there in a cannon, which I don't think he quite thought through how they were going to get home again. You know, and then so on and so on, to the point where actually Tintin went to the moon, Frank Sinatra sang us to the moon. Yeah. By the time we got there, the, the longing was so important. And I guess for me, that word longing is a word I come back to again and again in the work that I do. We won't create a zero carbon future in the tiny time frame that we have unless we can cultivate longing. And cultivating longing is not the work of facts and figures and, and reports. It's the work of imagination. It's the work of storytelling. I loved a reading recently that the Swedish government uh, recently appointed someone called Per Gronqvist to the role of chief storyteller. And his job description is to bring to life the day-to-day -day realities of living in a post-carbon world. And I think we need that in all our organizations. We should Education should mean that we all leave school being able to be that. And you know, one of the things we're exploring this evening is what's the role of the art? Well, it's kind of clear to me because artists can do that stuff so much better than the rest of us can. They can bring alive uh, a world. And just one little example of something that, that was developed in the transition movement with transition activists uh, and with artists is something that we do called Transition Town Anywhere, which is an exercise where you need a big space, 
between 100 and 400 people, you imagine that you're closing your eyes and you're stepping into 2030, not a paradise, not a utopia, but a 2030 that's the result of us having spent the time between now and then doing everything that could possibly have been done. And then you go there in your imagination, then you build, but you build it literally with cardboard and bamboo and string and sticky tape, and then you trade in it and you live in it and you inhabit it. And to be with 300 adults lost in a play world of their imagining is so important because Rilke once said something like, the future must enter into you a long time before it happens. Mm-hmm. And art can enable that to happen better than anything else that I know, I think. That's brilliant, Rob. That's really great. I love, you're quite right about, um, about it needing to enter you now in that sense and before you can make it happen. So, so Brian, you and I were talking about Paul Hawken and what I find with the great disconnect that art needs to heal is the fact that we know there are thousands and thousands of people who want life to change who don't like the way they live. And yet there's this gulf. So how do we how do we get into that gulf and give people the kind of energy that you know the people who do transition plans do? We just need to multiply it by a million. Yes. So the really important take home from the Paul Hawken book for me, I should just quickly summarize that book. It's a book called Blessed Unrest. It was written, I think, in 2005. And at that time, Almost as a tangent from the book, Paul decided to make a list of all the environmental organizations in the United States at that time. So this is 16 years ago. He gave up after he reached about 200,000. There were so many environmental organizations that he just couldn't keep up with it. Now, I assume that this will have multiplied by at least four or five times as much since then. So we have this amazing spectacle now of literally billions of people being involved in the environmental movement in some way or another. And this must be the biggest movement in human history. There's never been anything like it. And yet we still all feel that we are the little Davids fighting the huge Goliaths. We still feel that all the power is with the governments who aren't doing anything or the corporations who are doing far too much. And and we're the sort of resistance But I think if we look around, we'll realize that we're the huge majority in this particular contest. Now, I remember reading a book about the end of the Soviet Union some years ago, and there was a wonderful sentence in that where the writer, Alexei Yerchak, says, "Um, revolutions come in two phases. The first phase is when everybody realizes something is wrong. The second and crucial phase is when everybody realizes that everybody else knows it as well. And that's really the important moment, I think. And this is, this is what I think we're getting towards. I call that moment in my mind, I call it coalescence. It's the point where everybody looks around and says, Jesus, we're all doing it. Suddenly we're not the resistance anymore. We're the dominant force. And I think we have to realize that very, very quickly. Um, we have to realize, as Rob says, that we've got to start building it. It's no use waiting for somebody else to start. We're all on it. We're all doing it. Let's just do it together. This, this aspect of community is really the essential thing, I think, that we have to start thinking as a community. Yes. Do you, Brian, do you want to read the, your contribution to the book? Because it's such a good yes. thing about community. It's very short. But it really, really says this thing, we don't want to do things alone. 
Okay, for one week, think about everything you do in terms of whether it strengthens or erodes community. Community strengthening activities can be quite subtle. For instance, a narrow road creates an opportunity for generosity and an opportunity for gratitude when one driver pulls in to let another one pass. Or think of a shop where buying something involves making contact with somebody, interacting with them and thanking them. Or going to the local pub or helping somebody with their bags or walking your dog where other people walk theirs. Dogs are a very good community binder, by the way. Uh, even cinemas and theatres and sports matches are short-lived communities, occasions where people share something together, see each other, smile at each other. These small interactions are the lubricants of social life, the ways in which we discover each other and find common feelings. They're becoming scarcer. How do you shop? What do you buy? How do you entertain yourselves? Where do you go? Who do you meet? Who do you help? Who helps you? Who do you thank? So thank you. really all those questions are ways of saying, are you living the atomized life that capitalism would like you to live, where you live at home in your little box, buying things online, not meeting anybody, not talking to anybody, not having any reason to help anybody or be helped by anybody? Or... Yeah. Or is there a better life than that? So, Carolina, from where you are in Colombia, which I know is a country that's been, you know, atomized by the violence and by the corruption of the illegal cocaine and all of this, do you see a resurgence of community now? Absolutely. Actually, we uh, yesterday uh, we had sixty days of a national strike. Uh, it's, it's unprecedented in the history of Colombia, this national strike, mostly led by younger people um, that are fed up uh, of, uh, you know, the, ma the, the systematic killings of social leaders and environmentalists here in Colombia. Actually, we are the country that accounted for over 50% of killings of environmentalists last year. It's like way over Philippines, way over Brazil. Um, uh, the pandemic has just uh, made, uh, you know, hunger and uh, unemployment just worse. Uh, and uh, we are under a fascist regime here in Colombia who are, um, you know, um, actually giving up the territories to massive corporations to come and dig out gold, uh, oil and everything that should be kept under the ground. Right. So, yes, the community, the younger people in the community are leading this by um, taking the streets as you know we started the conversations taking the streets there's been um, a beautiful um, wave of people doing ollas comunitarias which is the community parts which means you block the street by building a fire in the middle of the street you put a pot everything brings something into the pot and then everyone gets fed from the pot this is an olla comunitaria community pot so everyone cooks for everyone um then also uh, the diaspora, I live in Los Angeles, uh, has been very generous in sending supplies to frontline um, members uh, in the medical front, in the activist front. So, yeah, I've seen something that I've never seen in my life. Uh, and it's this community building and this community resistance and, and also having 
a deep connection between what's happening in the city and the rural areas. Like normally Colombia had been a very centralized country with, you know, all the decisions taking mm-hmm. place in, in the capital. And now people are being more aware of what's happening around them in the rural, uh, you know, uh, places of the city. And also people are very angry because the peace implementations that were signed three, four years ago with the FARC guerrilla that are now um, a political party, you know, were not respected and are not being respected by the government uh, on, in place right now. So people are demanding that, that uh, peace agreements take place. Um, yes. Yeah, so there's something very important uh, that I want to, you know, kind of wrap up with. And um, it's the construction of environmental historical memory here in Colombia, which has been a very important tool from those who have been victims and now survivors of the cruent war Mm -hmm. that has Mm -hmm. happened. And uh, people who suggest that we construct not only historical memory to remember what has happened so in the future we don't repeat, Mm-hmm. also has put a, a prism of environmentalism in the construction of, of uh, historical memory, arguing that nature here in Colombia has not only been a scenario of the war, but also a booty of the war, right? And has been a victim of yeah. the war. And as any victim, it needs reparation. So environmental historical memory has become a very important political tool for survivors to demand accountability of those who have perpetrated violence against nature, uh, be it the government itself, any armed uh, group, you know, paramilitary or guerrilla, left wing or right wing, and also international and national corporations that have perpetrated that violence. Yes, I think that that's, that's really interesting. And, and, you know, and the lawyer, Philippe Sands, is now working on the law around ecocide because someone mm-hmm. on an international yeah. level has to stand up for the environment, yes. and in particular, the oceans. We, the middle of them who have no one who who bats on their side so yeah so Bob, the um i thought it's very interesting this thing i mean what you do is you manage to get away from central government with transition plans you manage to make it all about you know when caroline was talking about having a, a, a feast in the middle of the street that's a very transition idea isn't it that you just bypass the, the status quo yeah i mean it's certainly I would never say that that the idea that we do everything at the community scale is all that we need. Clearly, we need the kind of international binding stuff that we may hopefully see happening at COP26, that we we need governments to act with way more commitment, urgency, passion and imagination than they are at the moment. We need the same from business. We need the same from local government. We need the same as individuals. But I guess in the transition movement, we always felt like the missing piece is what can we do here in this place with the people that we have? And communities, when they are able to organize and are supported with good tools and good networks and, and resource, they can do things that someone in the treasury with a clipboard would never have thought of thought of in a million years. They can move much faster and in a much more agile way. And to go back to what I was saying before, they, they are able to, to tell stories that spread really, really fast. I remember when we first started doing transition here in Totnes and we started the Totnes Pound. You know, we just what would happen if we started printing our own money in Totnes? I saw a I saw a wall on a in a on a wall in the building. I saw a one pound note produced in 1810 by the Bank of Totnes. I was like, wow, we had our own bank and we made our own money. 
what happens if we made some more? And I formed an advisory panel of learned alternative economists and said, what would happen if we printed some new pound notes? You know, is there a special room in the Tower of London reserved for people like me? And they said, no idea. Try it. See what happens. It's not really an advisory panel. Anyway, we did. And then, you know, we, the Tottenham's pound here ran for about 11 years. We had a 21 pound note for quite a long time. And people would say, why have you got a 21 pound note? And we would say, well, why not? We'll do what we like. Thank you very much. And now that model has spread all across France. I go to places with a 13 note and a 49 note. I went to Liège in Belgium recently where they have a zero note. I said, why have you got a zero note? And they said, well, you know, because sometimes people do something nice for you and you want to say thank you, but you don't want to put a number on it because it feels kind of mercenary. You just want to give them a little token of your gratitude. You know, so, so there's, but actually all around the place, people might know nothing about Totnes, but they know that we're the town that printed its own money. And I always really encourage people to do those kind of things, ideas that spread. And if the transition movement is anything, it's really a network of stories. We, we, we give people the resources. It's free. You don't have to pay an annual membership to be a transition group. But, but we say the commitment is that you share your stories back into the network. And those stories are so, so powerful because you never know where they go and you never know who they'll inspire or touch. Well, I guess, Costas, that's what you've tried to do with the book, haven't you? That you've, you've collected stories and you've thrown them into the world. Do you want to share one of your favourites with us? Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of my favourites is by the amazing poet Ban Kapil. Um, and I will begin to read what uh, she has contributed. Instruction for mixed groups of artists, poets, activists, and all those working for climate justice in the coming time. You are not doing this alone. Organize around a midline seam or orange flare. But before you begin this work with others, ask yourself, what do you never want to experience in this space? Train yourself to ask this question before you begin. Otherwise, whatever you do will pour from the cracked vase into the wet grass. I think it's, it's such an important um, contribution in the book and such an important question. And I imagine myself, I mean, I'm living this experience now, asking myself, what do I never want to experience in this space? And I'm currently in this space online with you. I'm currently in Athens. You are all in London, in Totnes, in Colombia, in the UK. We have very different answers to what we all never want to experience in this space in relation to the environmental effort, thinking about mixed groups of people working towards the same goal. So I am imagining all of you asking yourselves that question. And that is an important motion to make in the environmental effort. Just that awareness, just raising that point is really what we think is really crucial in this book and in the Back to Earth project as a whole. And then of course, in the work of all the people that are involved in it. I'm sure that Carolina and Brian and Rob all themselves ask that question in whatever work that they do. And it is that awareness that really, and that sensibility that really brings us, brings everyone together. And that's how we also try to communicate our work to our audiences via the Back to Earth program. It's really about creating and actually mirroring the complexity and the messy ground of the environmental problem itself. It's never shared. It's always shared in the effort, but it's so different from the mycelium detail to the large forests, to 
questions of land and borders and nations. Um, so those kind of complexities and th that kind of messiness of the actual issue at hand is how we want to relate. And we always ask ourselves in the hope that everyone joins us in this question, what do you never want to experience in this space? Thank you. And um, Brian, I'm going to just to say that please put your questions in and we will come to them in about 10 or 15 minutes. They're already beginning to come in, but just add them in. Um, Brian, how do, we, how do we cope with being in the here and now in the sense that our imagination has been hijacked to such an extent by the internet that you don't have to daydream. You don't have to spend time just dreaming up things, having imaginary friends as a kid. Um, and yet we know if you don't have imagination, you end up in a 1984 Handmaiden's Tale kind of world where you become semi-robotic. So how do we make, how do, how do we be become imaginative within this current world? Because, you know, on one level, it's easy to say we'd all like to go backwards, but we can't go backwards. We've got this and we're on Zoom at the moment. And there's certainly some good things to be said, but how do we bring the imagination back in? I think there are lots of ways of doing that, but I would I would like to stress some of the community-based ways of doing that, since that's both what, well, in fact, what we're all talking about, really. If you think about the work that each of us does, that they're, they're all we're all in some sense dependent on the idea of inspiring a community or making a community that inspires us. Um, one very simple thing. Um, that I'm missing at the moment because of COVID is that for 20 years in my studio, I've had yeah. people meet every Tuesday evening to sing a cappella. Now that sounds like an incredibly normal thing, I suppose. <laughs> um, and I don't make any claims that we're the greatest a cappella group on earth at all. But what, what it does do, it shows you the power of a group of ordinary people getting together to make something together. And it doesn't really matter in the end what we sound like. We like it. I, I wouldn't imagine that um, we were ever going to be at the London Palladium doing it. But what, what does matter is that a bond has formed between us and between all the people who've belonged to this group over the years that is as strong as any bond I've ever felt with anybody, really. And it's just this thing of a group of people getting together and being vulnerable in front of each other, exposing themselves. You know, when you sing, when you do anything with other people, you kind of expose yourself. Mm -hmm. you, you suddenly are seen for what you do and who you are. And if you can do that, this is something, of course, that everybody knew in the past, but we've lost touch with it um, somewhat. But if you can do that, you suddenly belong in a way that, um, in, a, in a very special way, actually. And I've, I've always thought the thing that humans want more than anything else, it's not fame or money or anything like that, it's belonging, the sense of belonging to a community. Now that has really badly been hijacked, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, the internet is an ex a really good example. Social media is a really good example of how not to do that in that, um, what happens is that the kind of meetings we have on social media tend, because of the algorithms, to push us to extremes away from each other. Whereas in, when we meet in person, generally people tend to consensus. 
generally people want to get on with each other. You know, there are very few people who like to start fights, but not that many in real life. In, in general, when a group of people meet, they would tend to converge on certain things that they can agree about and maybe argue about others. But on the internet, you get very little convergence and a lot of, a lot of um, antipathy, actually. And I think we really have to get through that phase now. Um, and I think it's, it's a technical issue. It's to do with algorithms. And the algorithms are to do with the fact that this is basically a capitalist structure that wants to hold your attention because it can monetize your attention. So, so this, is a, this is a problem of technology and ideology interfering in a way that they shouldn't do. So I think those are the levels at which we should be looking. And we can do it by starting a cappella groups, <laughs> for example, or knitting groups, or book groups, or running groups, or swimming clubs. Yes, you know, yes, absolutely. swimming clubs. Now I do that one. But um, Rob, you have a lot in about um, you know someone like Susana, you whatever she's called, who wrote the Zuboff. Zuboff, sorry. Um, yes, the, the the whole monetization and how people get trapped within it and. Um, you have to keep asking. Will you read us your list of what is? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something very inspiring. Because and how did you collect them? Well, they're not mine. They're they're so I I do a lot of workshops with different groups and different organisations, which is about asking them to come up with what if questions. And I think a good what if question is like uh, somebody I quote in the book. I can't remember the quote, but something like a good what if question is like writing the first half of a really audacious question on the blackboard and then respecting people's uh, ability to complete it in the way that feels good to them and, and so I do a lot of workshops with people getting them to imagine you know coming up with the what if questions and we we often do a thing thing where uh, before and then I ask them to think okay what were the what if questions bit of trouble with the internet questions people are oh, am I back again Yes, nope. you're back. Am I back? Yeah, so then I, I, I asked them to imagine what were the what if questions that were. Oh, we're losing you a bit. I asked oh. back in 2020. Oh, okay. Hello. Am I back? Yes. Am I back? Okay. I'm back. So, so these what if questions aren't mine. These are actually from the London National Park City Project, which is an amazing thing started by Daniel Raven Ellison. And this was, uh, they asked on Twitter people to send in their what if questions. So, the, so this is the list. So what if you could swim safely in all of London's canals? What if all residential streets were play streets? What if every street had public art? This is my favourite one. What if birdsong drowned out traffic noise? What if there were more trees than people? What if a squirrel could get from one side of London to the other without touching the ground by jumping from tree to tree? What if we had a vertical climbable commons? What if majestic red kites filled London skies again? What if, you could see, what if you could see the Milky Way from every garden? What if re, we rewilded all of London's golf courses? What if every park in London were connected to all of its neighboring parks by at least one green quiet way suitable for walking, cycling and gardening too? And just, just one thing I would add about what if questions is the thing that I always say to groups when we start doing that, which is something I learned from studying improv, which I'm sure many people here will have done, is that I always teach them that difference between yes and and yes but. Because in our, in our daily lives, every time we bring a what if question, we get met with a yes but. Yeah, but it's too late. It's too expensive. It's too complicated. 
when you meet it with a yes and and you build on it then things get really really interesting and we desperately need in our movements in our organizations but in our wider society to create a yes and mm -hmm. culture rather than the kind of yes but culture that brian was talking about that just shuts possibilities down i think that's that's really interesting carolina when uh, because i've come to columbia quite a bit with the hay festival i've always thought that Medellin was an example of a yes and and a what if that you said this was the city with the highest murder rate in the world who eventually they got a mayor who did do a transformation. I know it might have faults, but it is still an extraordinary thing that was done there. Well, um, yes, though I have a lot of issues with that particular <laughs> mayor, <laughs> so I okay. prefer not to talk about that. Um, but I, I prefer to look uh, to inspiration to what indigenous and Afro communities have been doing here in Colombia, uh, which is reclaiming their culture, um, you know, finding spaces to build up the collective body, which is basically what we've all been talking about uh, through uh, remembering their rituals right now. A very important one happened because it's the beginning of the Andean year the summer solstice, 20, 20 to 21st of June. So here in Cauca region where I am, the Sekbui, it's a, it's a ritual where everyone spends the night together waiting for the, you know, the day, the longest day to start, you know, in ritual, uh, munching on coca leaves, uh, listening to the elders, uh, and just letting, you know, the, the environment, nature, Pachamama, Gaia, whatever name you want to give it, just penetrate you and feel and root yourself to a place, right? That belonging that we've mentioned. Um, the Minga, which is the collective work, which is a Quechua word, and that kind of guides also a lot of the principles of the indigenous um, kind of social movement that's so strong and important here in Colombia, the Minga, uh, you know, one of the, their statements is mandar obedeciendo, to, um, to govern by obeying, right? You can't govern if you don't obey the collective will, mm -hmm. right? And uh, it's so important for me uh, to see their political structure, both of the Afros and the indigenous people here in the Afros. They're called Consejos Comunitarios, Comunitarios, uh, so community councils, and they rotate every year or every two years. If they're doing a good job, they can stay. And everyone has a chance to be in that Consejo Comunitario, community council. Uh, and then in the Minga, and sorry, in the indigenous, uh, you know, you have the Cabildos, which are also um, elected leaders that also rotate. Uh, you can come back. Um, but then you have something that's so important and so beautiful, which is called the, um, the structure of the Guardia Indígena, the indigenous guard. You also have the Guardia Afro. But in the Guardia Indígena, it's basically a front line, non-armed, right? Who, for example, during protests, during the strike right now, or during a particular community need is there to tend the needs of the community. Anyone can be part of the Guardia Indígena. It doesn't matter your age. So you can be a one-year-old person or a 90-year-old person being part of the Guardia Indígena. Uh, and... Um, and it's really beautiful, no? In a, in a country that has a culture of violence in Colombia, you know, that the younger generations mm -hmm. are trying to uproot by all this collective work that they're doing. 
to have a guardia indígena that's not armed. The only kind of element they have is, is like a, a baston de mando, which is a stick that each one has to carve. You know, they have to choose a stick, carve it. They decorate it, super beautiful. And then, you know, they have to protect and tend the needs of the, of the people. So I think it, for me, it's more useful to look at those community structures more than the, the, the city and centralized structures that have been happening here in Colombia. Medellin is great. It's a great city. Please visit if you want, you know, if you need, you can. It's beautiful. Um, I think the success of that transformation was because there was political will for sure, but also a strong community-led will uh, that still yeah. is in place in Medellin. No, thank you. And um, uh, that's very interesting what you what you said about Medellin. I've always thought though that they did do something fairly astonishing and you did need that. So, so Brian, I mean, given where we are at the moment, which is that, you know, this government is saying they're going to pass an environment bill by the time of COP26 in November, and it's grinding along and it's lots and lots and lots of legislation. What would you, what would you want to see um, that the, what part of it does the government need to play in order to enable everyone to be part of transition towns or everyone to just start changing their life and taking, I mean, feeling that you have agency in your life. You're on mute. So sorry. Um, I, I think I would start with education. Mm -hmm. You know, why, why are we still thinking that the most important thing we can teach children is the STEM subjects? And so important that we get, we're prepared to ditch every other subject in order that we can teach science, technology, engineering, mathematics. I don't deny the importance of those things. You know, I live like we all do in the benefits of all of those sciences and technologies. But as I said at the beginning, science is great at discovering, but art is how we digest things. Art is how we get to understand things and understand where they fit in our lives and in our feelings and in our beliefs. And I think that we've now got this very utilitarian approach to education, which says, as long as you can operate a computer and know how to operate a calculator and use the internet, you'll be fine. You'll be equipped for anything that the future can throw at you. But actually, what becomes very clear is what we need more than anything else now is imagination. We're going into a future that's very difficult to predict, probably more difficult than any future has ever been to predict. And what's going to be needed is the ability to improvise. Mm -hmm. And improvisation is imagination in action. Improvisation is where you try something, see how it works, modify your behavior accordingly. So it's a continual feedback loop of your interaction with the environment. And we're exactly as this moment, we reach this moment in history, we're saying to kids, but don't bother about any of that. That's just the kind of gravy. You know, that's not the important part. The meat and potatoes is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Then if you've got all that done, you can have a bit of art in the evenings or, or you know, this, this kind of attitude to all of that other stuff, which humans are so brilliant at and so engaged in, um, that, that's all sort of superfluous and not very important. This really has to change. So, so I think 
I mean, I know it's rather a deep level at which to start, but we have to start with education and with rethinking education. I mean, my great hope for COVID was that having a whole generation of children who'd missed a year of school might turn out to be a huge benefit <laughs> because they might have started learning in different ways. I will see whether that prediction comes true. You put that rather into a kind of past tense as though it wasn't going to happen. Yeah, well, yes, yes, that, we'll see. <laughs> so Rob, um, you have lots of, I mean, a lot of people are sending in questions about what we should do about education. You have some great examples in your book of places where people are teaching children to just completely, you know, learn in a different way. Do you want to tell us about some of these? Yeah, I mean, there's, the, there's, uh, there's lots of examples in there, whether it's people who've developed really good programs to take imagination into the existing education system, people creating kind of imagination departments within existing schools, schools that are designed from the outset uh, based on the ideas of imagination. But all of them that I spoke to talk about as their model the education system from Reggio Emilia in Italy where in 1945 as the Germans retreated north they left behind in Reggio Emilia a tank three trucks and six horses which were then sold to build a school based on the idea of a system of education that would make sure that fascism never happened again which you know you'd like to think was a kind of a prerequisite for for, for most education systems that appear to have been something that was rather overlooked so uh, so they say that as, as, as part of the, their, their system they look at children as being authors of their own learning they don't teach by subjects, they teach by projects. The class, uh, the schools have a workshop in the middle where someone will help you make whatever you want to make. There's a whole philosophy that goes with it. It, strike, it struck me when I was researching it that we have in, in, in Europe and in the US have created the education system that is its absolute opposite. And the resurgence of, of fascism is really no example, really no uh, surprise when you create an imagination, an education system like that. And, and, I, and I completely agree with Brian that one of the great things that has to happen now is, is the reimagining of education, because mm -hmm. education should teach you how to think, not what to think. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we we are going to live in a future again, as Brian said, where it's not where, where the problems there is not just one solution to a problem that you're given. You can come at it from many many different angles, and it's that imagination mm -hmm. rather than innovation, which is something that is kind of in service to the market. It's imagination that we need to nurture and cultivate. And as the late great Ken Robinson put so beautifully, you know, yeah. we need to reimagine education with that at its heart. So there's a really interesting question from Ursula Blythe saying that um, young people are afraid to be different and that once you start really exercising your imagination, you become different and you step out of the mainstream. How do you, how do you give people the confidence, Rob? Um, I, the research that I did su suggested that actually between up to the age of five, there has been no decline in the levels of imagination with kids. I spoke to a woman called Dr. Marjorie Taylor, who's done this research for years, 30 years, and hasn't noticed any decline. Something happens when their kids are about five or six, and that, and that thing is school. I think that actually, you know, th this idea that imagination uh, makes us really different from everybody, and 
you know, I've, I've been to schools where, where imagination is really at the heart of, of, of what they do. And it's exhilarating, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I remember when the school strike started, the climate strikes, and uh, there was a huge walkout of school in Australia. And the Australian prime minister said, kids should be in school. Schools aren't parliaments. And I thought mm-hmm. they could be, though, couldn't they, actually? Mm-hmm. With a bit of imagination, they really could be. And, and kids learn more going on those strikes than they did staying in school, I think, quite often. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's true in some ways that actually when you're at that age, you kind of want to be the same as everybody else. But actually, it's also true that young people are capable of extraordinary things and young people love uh, to be in a space where, where, their, where their curiosity is evoked and their imagination is welcomed. And if we assume that they don't and we offer them you know, if, if our assumption is that they don't want to be in a really imaginative space, then we deny them so much. And, uh, and we need to create the space for them to really come alive in, I think. So we have a great contribution here from Gay Coley. We have, a, she's right, we have a project, The Road to Happiness, trying to take over a metre square feet of derelict space, must be more, more than that, a mile square foot of derelict space on the border of Wales, turned into a space where ordinary people connect to their creativity. The idea is informed by the Wizard of Oz. There's no wizard about wizard, it's about us using heart, head and courage to tackle climate change. What do you think? Are we mad? And if not, might your panel join us? And I think the answer probably is yes. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we are also being asked about why we think the government's more important to stop art and music when we all know we did trigonometry is not something we ever think of. Well, I agree with that. And I think we've to some degree answered that one. And Penny from Hay says, innovation always follows imagination, which of course is right. I mean, how can you be a great engineer and innovator without it? Um, can I just answer really quickly yeah. about the previous question? I, for one, just want, I think it's important to say that throughout the Back to Earth project, um, every time that our audience is young, is when I don't. I feel I don't have to explain it anymore. Every single time, I know that they already get it, uh, and that is completely an invigorating feeling and lesson that I take forward in um, the work that we do with the team. So these conversations that we have now, I feel if you put them to younger audiences, it's not that they lack imagination or they feel constrained to express it. It's us that need to find a way to engage with them because most of the time they really understand it. And it's us that needs to learn from that. And it actually creates a quantum capsule of time about how we work across different generations. So there's one last thing that I wanted to read from the book. It's Black Quantum Futurism who have a question uh, that says, what items would you put in a quantum time capsule that could be, able, that could be opened by people in the past? And for me, if I could put something now, it would be both the things that are working, but both of the things that are not working. And for me, what is not working is a way to really connect with those audiences that are much younger than us, that are already versed in these things much more than we are because of the efforts that they're striving mm-hmm. for. And it just constructs this productive interconnection across generations of the same time, of the past and of the future. Thank you. Thank you so much, Costas. Yes. Um, So I'm really sorry. We're just kind of running out of time, but I'd just love to ask you all, what would be your action that you take away from this, Carolina? What would you, what do you want to see people do? Um, 
Well, I, I want to bring up a term coined by Arturo Escobar, who is a Colombian sociologist, and he talks about sentipensar, to think by feeling, right? So that would be something that I'm kind of, um, you know, striving to do myself, and I invite everyone here to, to try and, and sentipensar, to, to think by feeling. Thank you. That's wonderful. And Rob, what would you, what's your takeaway you can do? I, I would say that we are only able to be as imaginative when it comes to thinking about a, a low carbon, more just, more equal, more fair future, uh, depending on the, the contents of the cupboards of our memory. So when we are being imaginative, we are basically going to our memory cupboards and rummaging through, finding things and assembling them in new ways. That's the imagination piece. So we can, we can only be as vibrant and as imaginative thinking about that future. If we have filled those cupboards with stories of what's happening around the world, stories mm -hmm. of resistance like Carolina was talking about, stories that you find in the transition movement and other movements. So fill your cupboards, positive news magazine, or all the all transition movement. There are so many places where there are those stories. Pack your cupboards full of them because you're going to need them. <laughs> and Costas, what would you say? I would, um, I always want to connect more. And I think that connecting more with people with different backgrounds, geographies, experiences of the same situation than joining the same fight is the most important thing that you can do. Do the work that you do alone, but understanding that this is an already existing ecology and only if you understand it as an ecology will we see uh, more uh, changes at a bigger level and a, um, a greater impact. Um, and I would just say that if you want change to happen, start with yourself. If you're not given it, ask for it. If you're not given it again, demand it. Thank you. Brian? Um, well, this is kind of a collage of what everybody else has just said. But what I really think is that you have to educate your friends and mm -hmm. you have to ask them to educate you. You have to stop fucking sitting in front of the television <laughs> and start talking to people and say, what do you think of this book, for example? Can I, can I show you this book? Mm, except it keeps getting a bit cut off. <laughs> yes. It's called How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm. So it's a very provocative question. It says, should the environmental music movement become violent? Hmm. Um, not against people, but against property. So this is a very, I think, a very hot question. And I want everybody I know to read it because I want to have this conversation with them. You know, I don't sit on my own and have ideas very much. Most of my ideas come up in relation to somebody else. I'm thinking it out with somebody else or with a group of other people. And again, I think part of the sort of atomization process that has made us all separate little consumers is that we've stopped learning from each other so much. You know, one of the astonishing things that I discovered when I first started going to Russia in the 1980s, and equally when I started going to Ireland about the same time, was that everybody's idea of a great evening out was to sit talking. Yeah. Not going out to a club or anything like that, just sitting around being together. Mm. You know, in, in Russia, they have a special word for this. I think it's called obzheny. And it means kind of hanging out, passing the time, but actually having conversations. And I really think that this is what we should be doing. 
this is why I appreciate my relationship with you so much, Rosie, because we're always we're always forcing each other to read books. <laughs> <laughs> saying well, you've got to read this one you've got to read this one i will i will i will know and I, I i gave you the ministry of the future it's your turn now yeah so, but anyway this is also a great book for everybody to read 140 artists ideas for planet earth because there is just so much in there from all our wonderful contributors today and many other people so listen thank you and thank you all for all the great questions we got so many nice things of people saying i really love this conversation is it recorded answer is yes you'll be able to get it uh, online from probably tomorrow or later on tonight. Please stay with the conversation. It is about conversation. I will leave you with one thought because it was brought to my attention today and I'm going to read it out. The Prime Minister said to Tom McTague of The Atlantic, this is recently, this is Boris Johnson, people live by narrative. Human beings are creatures of the imagination. Well, he said it, he's not doing it, I can tell you. But it is, you could say, an instruction from number 10 to get working on our imaginations. So <laughs> I'm going to take it like that and give it to all of you as an instruction from the Prime Minister. And on this, at least, I think he was right. Good night and thank you very much indeed for joining us.